for those of you who don't know me and that I don't know you, um, this is the Hubster. He's right here. Um, and my better half, and we have three kids, two in college, one in grad school. So we're, we've kind of moved on from most of the parenting. Now we're just more like coaches, you know, so that's kind of a fun stage to be in. Um, so what, what, yeah, yeah, and the financiers, yeah. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah, you know what our money situation's like with three kids. Um, how many of you all are OU fans? Woo! OU. Okay, all right. OSU? Oh, wow, okay. Pretty even. I mean. um, so, a couple weeks ago, right, we had Bedlam. Yes. And uh, when you went to Bedlam or when you watched Bedlam, you had an emotional investment in the outcome of that game, right? Yeah. Um, and depending on who won and who lost, you had certain responses, I'm assuming. I can imagine what some of those were. Um, but the team that you were rooting for, your Bedlam team, was probably something that you either grew up with. I mean, we see children, right, that are wearing OU shirts or OSU tennis shoes. Children who have no idea what football even is are already being programmed. <laughs> to be fans. So your loyalty may have been because of the way you were raised, or it might have been uh, because you went to school there. But you developed an attachment to your school. And so when you watch or go to Bedlam, you have an emotional investment in who's going to win. What about, let's talk for a minute about cars. Uh, pick a luxury car. BMW. BMW, all right, good. Or JAG. Okay, we'll go with BMW. That was the first one that came to mind. Go with that. Um, okay, so you get to a point where your car uh, needs to be replaced. And all your adult life, you have wanted a BMW. <laughs> but you get to that point where you have to replace your car. And you go and look, and you have things to, to think about, right? Uh, you look at, perhaps you could buy a brand new lower-end model, brand new. You get the full factory warranty, and you're, you're not guaranteed, but you're pretty sure you're not going to have problems with a brand new car for quite some time. Or for that same amount of money, you could buy a used BMW. Maybe it's four or five years old. Has some miles on it. Things might be starting to go wrong, and you know you're going to have some repairs on this one. And they're always more expensive on a BMW, right? Uh, your oil change is going to be 150, whereas over here your oil change might be 40. So... You're, you're weighing, hmm, I've got this much money. I could go new or I could go BMW. And so depending on what you choose, that you, your choice will depend on where you're coming from. What is the filter that you are using to look at that situation? If you were raised um, with not much money or raised with a lot of money, that might determine your choice. Uh, depending on the cultural setting that you live in, might determine your choice, or who your friends are might play into that, or maybe even how you feel about yourself. Do I want to look like this car, or do I want to look like this car? And so we come at our decisions from a perspective, and all of our perspectives are unique because we were all raised in different homes, maybe some of us even in different countries, uh, some of us were raised um, in vastly different socioeconomic situations. Some of us are educated, some of us are not. You know, we, we come to life with a filter. 
And so we think about things, we look at things, we make decisions based on this filter that's always in our head. And that filter, as you can imagine, is extremely important because it really does color everything that we do. So we want to look this morning at our filter. When I was a little girl, I can't remember how old I was. I was you know, somewhere, I want to say around 10, because I remember this very, very clearly. So I was old enough to remember it. But um, and this was back when... If you wanted to buy something, you actually went to the store. And so uh, our vacuum cleaner broke. And, and that was also when appliance stores were separate stores. And so my dad worked downtown, and my mom said, when you're downtown, would you go to the vacuum store and buy us a new vacuum cleaner? So that was his job. So he went to work that day, and he went and looked at, during lunchtime at the vacuum cleaner stores. And he talked to the salesman, and the salesman wrote down the model that he decided he wanted, and on the back of his business card, he wrote down Regina model, and then a seven-digit number. <laughs> so, you know what's going to happen. So he comes home that day and uh, hangs up his suit, and my mom, the next couple days, whenever, was going through his pockets to clean it out, take his suit to the cleaners, and here's this business card. And on the back of it, it says this information. So that night at dinner, we could tell that something was a little frosty. You know, the air was just a little <laughs> chilled. And we didn't know what was wrong, but um, dinner was finished. And then she's getting out the dessert plates. And she's kind of putting them out around the table. And she finally says to my dad, Jack, who is Regina Modell? <laughs> and of course, we didn't know. You know, we're just. And my dad looked up at her with just this, you know, blank. He says, who? And she pulls out this business card she's been hanging on to all dinner. And she slaps it on the table. Who is Regina Modell? And he looks at that business card. like, And then all of a sudden, this smile breaks out in his face. And he says, she's a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Isn't that great? But my mom had a certain filter. And when she saw that in my dad's coat pocket, her filter kicked in. And she's thinking, woman, Regina Modell, phone number, seven digits, hmm, you know. His filter was totally different in that situation. So it's so important, really, what is in our heads when we are going through our day, thinking about things, talking to people, making decisions, because we're filtering it through something. There's a grid up in there. And that is coloring everything that we think and say and do. So we want to come to life with the filter that will enable us to live the way God wants us to live, right? What are some of these filters? As you think back, what are some of the filters that we have in our heads? What contributes to that? Thoughts. Your thoughts, yes, okay. What makes our thoughts happen? What colors our thoughts? Our experiences, yes. What else? Our upbringing. Our upbringing. Education and advertising. Television, yeah. Friends. Absolutely, and our friends, yeah. Did I hear another one? Okay, so, but you get the idea. There are influences all around us, um, and we want to know what God wants us to do and think and how he wants us to act and behave. So there are three things on your sheet 
What do we want to do? We want to understand there how to see clearer, think smarter, and choose better. That's our goal as Christ followers, is to see clearer, think smarter, choose better. So that those three things line up with the character and the heart of God. That's where we want to land as Christ followers. So today we're going to really camp mainly on one verse, and then we'll look at a couple of other things. But our verse for today is Isaiah 26.3, and you're welcome to look that up if you like, or I'll just read it to you. It's a familiar one, but it says, you will keep, speaking of God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Is that a familiar verse? You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. We want to unpack that for these few moments that we have together because when I started picking this verse apart, Looking at the original words, I found something I had not seen before because I was raised with this verse. It was familiar to me. But several years ago, I did a particular study where I looked at the words here and discovered that this word mind, the Hebrew word for mind in this verse, carries with it the idea of a picture frame. And that's kind of odd in that verse, a picture frame. But what is, the, what is Isaiah saying about our minds is that our minds frame everything. They frame every circumstance. It frames every relationship. Everything that is said to you goes through the frame of your mind. And so what is in the mind is crucial to how we then respond to these things. It puts everything into context, whether we realize it or not that that filter is kicking in. And if we're not intentional, if we don't think about that, and we don't intentionally say, I want my mind filled with this as opposed to this, then we will always default to what's already in there or what we were raised with or how we were educated or what our friends say. That will be our natural default unless we intentionally put something else in there that we choose to have be our filter. So that's what we're talking about today. I want you to look with me at a couple of biblical examples so we can see practically how that works out in a life and what it actually means in Scripture. So Genesis 50, if you want to turn there, Genesis 50, this is the very familiar story at the end of the story of Joseph. And you know what happened to Joseph, that he was betrayed by his brothers and sold and ended up in Egypt far away where he was a slave and then he was in prison and eventually God raised him up to second in command of all of Egypt. But that process of suffering was 17 years long that Joseph had no idea what was happening, why any of this was happening, 17 years and so he gets to that point where he's now the second in command and there's been a famine and Joseph, the brilliant one that, that Pharaoh appointed, handled the famine, saved up food so they could keep their people fed. And people from other countries came to Egypt to buy food there because Joseph had wisely saved it all up. 
And so in the process, his brothers that betrayed him came to Egypt to buy food for their family. And so they have this encounter. They don't know he's Joseph because he was just a kid. Now he's an adult. They don't know he's Joseph. And they come to get food from him, and he is so gracious and kind to them and moves his dad and all their, uh, their family to Egypt, gives them a beautiful place to live where they will thrive. He's so good to them. But then the dad dies, and the brothers get a little nervous. They start thinking, you know, what if Joseph was really only doing this because of dad? And he's still secretly carrying a grudge. Now that dad's gone, what if? So Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they come up with this little scheme. They sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. And this is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to Joseph, he wept. He'd already forgiven them. He wasn't holding a grudge, but they were unsure. So then his brothers came and threw themselves before him. We're your slaves, they said. Rather than death, they chose slavery. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what do we see here? Joseph had had a certain set of experiences that were pretty negative, right? But how had he chosen to frame his life? God's way. What was Joseph's perspective? He trusted him. Anything else? God had had a bigger purpose, right? Joseph chose to kind of step back and look at what God was doing. This is not just about me. This is about something bigger. This is about Egypt. This is about my family. This is about saving people. You know, he was able to reframe a pretty bad situation with the truth of what God was actually doing, which was something really great. It just took a while to get there. So Joseph figured that out. Let's look at Numbers 13, another familiar story where Moses and all the people have come out of Egypt and they're just about to go into this beautiful land that God has promised them. And God had told them they were to go in, take the land. But he says to Moses, okay, before you go in, send a group of spies in to kind of scout it out so that when you go in, you're ready. You're prepared for anything. So Moses gathers these, these group, this group of 12, and he gives them their instructions, go in, check out the land, and then come back and report what you have found. So they go on in, and they come back, and here's what they say, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert, in the desert of Paran, and there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. 
So they'd brought back these examples of all this beautiful, abundant food. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, big scary guys. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, Amorites, they live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. In other words, they're all over. We would be surrounded if we go in. So then Caleb, one of the spies, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they'd explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Isn't that just wonderfully dramatic? Devours people. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, these tall giant type people. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Okay, is that true or is that their opinion? That's their opinion. That's how they felt about it. But is that true? How were they framing that situation? Through their own eyes. And with what kind of emotion? Fear. Fear. Looked impossible. How did Caleb frame that situation? We can do it. Confidence in what God had said to do. We can do it. And Caleb and Joshua stood alone and said, we can go in. And the other ten said, "Mm, we should not go in. And who did Moses listen to? Unfortunately, the ten. Because he lost confidence in God as well. And what happened to all those people? They died. All the people who were over 20 years old at that point died before going in to the promised land. It took 40 years. They all died out. And then God was ready to take this group of people in who would believe and who would trust. Who were the only two that got to go in from the original set? Caleb and Joshua. The ones who had seen the situation as God told them to see it. They looked at it through the picture frame of God and his character and his ability, not their own. And they believed. Amazing. One more, Esther. We love Esther. Esther, our girl, you know, she was just little when her parents died and she was orphaned. So she went to stay with her cousin, Mordecai. She was raised by a guy, this teenage girl. And, um, but he was evidently good to her. But then the king kicked out the queen there in Persia and was looking for a new one. So he gathered in all the young girls, brought them in, and she was swept up in that, taken away from her cousin Mordecai and put in the palace where she was going to be um, beautified and primped up and all of that to go in and impress the king. And you know what happened? He chose her, of all these girls, he chose her to be his queen. Well, at that time, these are all the Jews living in Persia, and Haman, who worked for the king, hated the Jews and hatched this plan to kill them all, kill all the Jews there in Persia. And Mordecai catches wind of that plot 
So he sends a message to Esther in the palace to let her know what's going on. And he says to her, you need to do something about this. You have some influence. Do something or we're all going to die. And so chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, Esther, Esther 4, verse 10. Thanks, Aaron. So she sends this message back to Mordecai. She instructs the messenger to say, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. In other words, she's saying, I can't go and talk to the king. I'll likely be killed. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, which we all love, don't we? Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Good words from her cousin Mordecai. So then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Okay, go, she says, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, then what? I perish. I perish. How did Esther originally frame this situation? Through the, through the law, right? She looked at the facts. Here's what I know about the law of Persia and the king, and this is what will likely happen. And that's what she based her first decision on. And then Mordecai helped her reframe it. And then how did she see that situation? through God's eyes, and what was her role in all that? To save the Jews, to save the Jews right. She was to step up, even if she was afraid. God was saying, I'm bigger than this, and you can trust me to do something. Look at it through me, not through the king, not through the law. Look at this situation through me. And so she changed her filter. And you and I have that same choice all the time, every day, in every situation. We have the choice as to what our filter will be. We can't control where we were born or who we were born to. We can't control when we were born or you know how old we are. We can't control where we went to school as little kids and who our friends were at that point. We were kind of just at the mercy of where our parents had us. But now we can control what we choose to look at life through. That is within our power to control. What we put in our head, what determines our choices. So going back to Isaiah 26 Three, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. 
So the mind is the frame that we look through. But what about the steadfast? What does that mean? That Hebrew word, steadfast, means to lay one's hands on. Our minds are framed by what we lay our hands on. That's what that verse is saying. Isn't that powerful? I mean, it's a great verse about peace, but when we start unpacking it and realizing where that peace comes from, it's what we choose to lay our hands on that become the things, that becomes the thing that frames our thinking. Wow. Why will we trust God? The verse says they will trust in you. Why will we have peace? Why will we trust God if we are steadfast, laying our hands on his word? Well, because of what John 1.14 says. John 1.14 says of Jesus, the word, calls him the word, became flesh, made his dwelling among us. As Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood. Love that word picture. But the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And Jesus, the word, was full of what two things? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's what happens when we lay our hand on the word of God. When this is in our minds and this becomes our frame of reference, the written word is infused with the living word. Jesus Christ took this and brought it to life. And he was the living word. And so when we choose the written word and the living word as our frame of reference, then we are full of grace and what? Truth. Truth. And we will live truthfully and we will choose things based on what's true. And we will have relationships based on what's true. And the truth is anything that corresponds to reality. And reality is God and the word. That's truth. So we want to frame our minds with what we know is going to work for us, and that is God himself. That is how we see clearer, think smarter, and choose better. That's how. It's not complicated. We just have to remember to do it, to replace the old stuff with the right stuff. When my husband and I got married, of course, we took lots of pictures. Well, we didn't take them. We had a photographer who took lots of pictures. And um, you can tell how old they are by this funny color pictures used to be. But um, this is one of our wedding photos when we just about cut the cake. There we are. And uh, we look just the same, really. (laughs) Um, Haven't changed a bit, honey. But this is us several years ago. And this picture is very important to me because it's the legacy that we're leaving our kids. And not everybody has the same situation, so please don't hear me saying it has to be one way or another. Our situation is that through thick and thin, and there's been a lot of that, both, God has sustained our marriage for 31 years. And it hasn't always been easy, but we are crazy about each other and in such a great place after some rough years a while back, 
God restored, and we have a great marriage. And this picture says to my children, your mom and dad stuck it out. And they know that, and this is their legacy. This is our legacy to them. This picture is important. So if I did not frame it or put it in a book, if I just had left it out for 31 years on a countertop or um, stuffed in a drawer and it got moved here and there, it would have gotten spilled on, it would have gotten bent, it would have gotten dusty, and what was important and precious would be damaged. But we don't want that to happen. And so instead, what we have done is we have a lot of them in a book, but we can put one in a picture frame because the frame then protects what is precious. And that's the same thing with our minds. We only get one and we get one life and it is precious to God and it is precious to him how we live it and what our relationships look like and what we act like at work and how we parent or how we grandparent or what we're like as a single. We're thriving in the situation that God has given us. That's important to God. And that all comes from what's in our minds. It's that important. So what is your frame of reference? Is it the news you read every day? Oh, I hope not. (laughs) Because what would we be thinking about all the time if our frame of reference was the news? We'd be depressed. We'd be angry. We'd be frustrated. We don't want to live like that. That's not how God asks us to live. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, joy, love, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We're not going to get that from the news. Entertainment. We just constantly watch TV, watch movies, read magazines, read novels. Not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but when that is our steady diet, our filter gets skewed and our thinking is out of whack. What is your frame of reference? What do you reach for in the mornings? What's the last thing on your mind when you go to bed? When you need to make a decision, what do you go to? You call your friend or you call your friend? Which one is most important to you in making decisions? How you frame things is crucial. One more example and we'll close. Um, Last year sometime, I came across a blog post. I didn't know this person. I just saw it on Facebook and the title grabbed my attention. It was something like, uh, the things I regret from being a stay-at-home mom. Something like that. And I was a stay-at-home mom And so that caught my attention. And I I didn't know people that regretted that decision. The girls that I ran around with when we were younger, we all loved being able to take care of our kids and do that. And so I was intrigued by this title. So I read the blog, and I I just was heartbroken over this woman who was saying she was now in her mid-40s and she had left a high-powered Wall Street financial-type career. She'd been on the trading floor at the stock exchange and making big money and lots of decisions, carried a briefcase, you know, high-tech, and she left that world 
to stay home with her three children, decided that she, that was what she wanted to do for the next 20 years, and raise those kids. So now she was finished, and they were off to college, and she's sitting uh, in the playroom, looking around, thinking, what happened to my life? And what she wrote, she gave a list of things that she felt now about herself, insignificant, that um, she wasn't smart anymore. She used to be smart, and she'd lost her brain over the last 20 years, and she wasn't smart anymore. <laughs> and she'd lost track of technology. Now if she wanted to do something, she had to call one of her kids. How do I log in? Where she used to have a team of IT people helping her. Um, and just on and on, she felt like sometimes she and her husband didn't converse very well because he was still out there moving and shaking, and she hadn't been, so now she felt like she was just you know, a lump, didn't have anything to offer. And she'd kind of aged out of the job market now, so who's going to hire her at 45? Um, which still sounds pretty good to me, but she felt old and, um, and that the world had moved on. And just this blog post just made me so sad. As I was reading, I felt sad for her because she had the wrong perspective. And so I thought it was interesting enough, and I have a lot of friends who I knew would be interested in it, so I put it on my Facebook wall. And I didn't make any comments because I wanted them to comment, so I just put at the top, interesting. Well, and I had a number of my friends chime in and say, oh, I so understand what she's feeling, but I wish she could know these things. Uh, very nice, gracious comments. Well, I had one friend that I hadn't thought about when I posted that, who um, is a, a very committed, stay-at-home mom, um, very passionate about women not working outside the home, but women being in the home and cooking and cleaning, and that's, that's her thing. She has nine children, and she loves it. You know, it's her thing. So more power to her. Um, God did not call me to nine children. Gave me three. Um, but if you have nine, you go, man. You go, girl and boy. Uh, but she read this blog post, and she responded quite aggressively. And here is what she said. Because at the top, remember, I just wrote interesting. And she wrote interesting, question mark. More like pathetic, exclamation point. This woman is thinking of no one but herself. And these reasons are totally self-centered. Isn't this the polar opposite of how we as believers should think and act? We are children of light and should walk as children of light. Praise God for his glorious calling for women as they serve the Lord in their homes, ministering to their husbands, raising the next generation, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I just, I felt the smoke, you know, coming out of the screen. <laughs> And I just, wow, I didn't know how to respond to that because obviously I'd hit a nerve with her. And, and yet I know where she's coming from too. So I was sitting there thinking, how do I respond to this? Because I really actually wanted to help her think about this a little differently because she was coming at it from one perspective. Well, I didn't want to just, you know, put something out there. So I went to bed that night and I just said, Lord kind of put something on my mind to say to her that will make sense. So I got up the next morning, kind of still mulling it over, and I sat down at the computer, and God just started to guide my thinking. And here's what I said. I don't know if it's, it's not perfect or anything, but this is what God gave me to say to her. 
I did find this blog post interesting because I rarely hear anything negative said from stay-at-home moms about their choice to stay home. Rather than feel this woman is pathetic, my heart goes out to her. I didn't sense a Christian or a biblical approach, but rather one of choosing to stay home with her kids because she wanted to. And in making that decision only in her flesh, without the power of God inside her, she has found herself now unsatisfied. And she's struggling to find her significance because it isn't in Christ. And that breaks my heart. I want to reach through the screen to her and tell her that what she did choose to do was amazing and that spending time with her kids was a good choice and that God has peace and significance for her in a relationship with Jesus. What I wanted to do for my friend who reacted was to reframe this woman for her because she had framed her this way as wrong and I wanted to frame her as needing compassion because she wasn't understanding her significance, and she is significant. Whether she raised her kids at home or went to work, she is a significant person because God made her. And that's what I would want her to know. And that's what I want my friend to know. I'm glad you have nine children, but even if you didn't, you are significant. If you work in a daycare, or you work in a bank, or you work in a hospital, or you work in a school, you are significant. That's the frame that we get through the Word of God. So anything we read, anything we come across, we want to stop and think, am I filtering through what is true and what is right and what will honor the Lord? So this week... This week, how will you frame those things in your life that you come across so that you will see clearer, think smarter, and choose better? Because when you do that, you will have, as Isaiah 26.3 says, the peace, the peace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, especially at this time of year, we think of Jesus our Prince of Peace, that you've promised peace through him, through our Savior, through our Redeemer, through this lover of our souls, that he gives us significance and that your words, Lord, your living person, Jesus, are to be our filter. Lord, would you frame our thinking, frame our beings with what is true, what is right, what is honorable and noble and praiseworthy in your sight. Thank you for doing that for us through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you.